welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hey, welcome to another episode of Weird Studies. I'm your co-host, J.F. Martel, and I just wanted to say a few words here before we get started because uh, Phil and I really just dive into this one. So today we're discussing uh, Philip K. Dick's essay, If You Find This World Bad, You Should See Some of the Others, which first took the form of a lecture he gave in 1977. And in this essay, uh, Philip K. Dick, the, the great science fiction writer, is exploring one of the key themes of his work, namely the um, idea of parallel universes. And um, so Phil and I uh, talk about this uh, in the context of of Dick's work, but also in the context of his life, um, because he took these ideas very seriously. And uh, we also discuss some of the metaphysical issues that arise uh, from this idea when it's uh, seriously considered. So we hope uh, you enjoy the show. It's a thorough essay. It must have taken him a while to read the whole thing. And I like to imagine what the expression on the faces of his listeners must have been as he was reading this. Yeah, I was curious about that last night. I was curious to know how people reacted to it. And I I found um, a, a few pages about that in a book called The Mind of Philip K. Dick or something like that, or Inside the Mind of Philip K. Dick. And uh, yeah, so the author described how uh, people were basically, it was just this this kind of stunned, embarrassed silence when he was finished. And at some point, the the interpreter just stopped translating towards the end and just looked like dumbfoundedly at at Dick. And, you know, especially in France, which is such a, at at least at this time in the science fiction world, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of guessing here but i'm assuming that most people in the audience were pretty secular in their orientation <laughs> so uh it must have been interesting i mean the the thing is that the tone of it he starts off and he's sort of playing it off like hey i'm a science fiction writer and i get these crazy ideas and here's one of them and as he goes along you realize more and more oh wait he's not fooling like this isn't an idea that he's just entertaining because he's a science fiction writer and because it's an idea that makes sense of a lot of his novels or, I mean, he does say that. And it also, you realize it's not just fodder for future novels. You realize at a certain point, oh, he's he's for real yeah. about this. He He means it. Yeah. I can well imagine that his audience might have been a little surprised. It's funny, though, the detail of the translator just giving up. Yeah. Dick must have noticed that at some point, that the guy wasn't saying anything anymore. Yeah. You can imagine him just plow, plowing on remorselessly. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, 
It's just like I've got I've got to get this all out. They, the people have to know. God, what a terrible thing it must be to be a prophet. I mean, if you were a real prophet, nobody would ever believe anything you said, right? Right. People could only ever respect you as a prophet in hindsight, which I guess is uh, the meaning of the... Isn't there a proverbial expression, no prophet is honored in his own country or something like that? Uh, Christ said, uh, prophet is never welcome in his home or something like that. Or Because like, at one point, Jesus, the Nazarene, um, returns to to Nazareth and... Um, and people are like, "Oh, that's the Messiah! No, that's that's Jesus. He's a carpenter. He's you know." And then it's like the people who know <laughs> you, the people who know you well, will never buy your bullshit or your truth, for that matter. Like the people who know you well will always put you in your place. And I think there's something to that because I can't help but I'm I am so torn when it comes to Philip K. Dick. So before we go any further, let's just describe very briefly, the gist of this essay. So basically, in 1977, Philip K. Dick was invited to France to talk to a... I can't remember what the association is, but it was in Metz in France. It was a convention of sorts, science fiction event. And he gave this lecture called If You Find This World Bad, You Should See Some of the Others. And in in this essay, in this lecture, he describes a kind of what's become a kind of trope science fiction idea, the idea that there are many parallel universes and one one can can move from one parallel universe to the other. But pretty soon in the in the lecture, it becomes obvious that Philip K. Dick got this idea from an actual experience he had, and that he actually believes that there are parallel universes, and he believes that he was involved in a in a plot on a parallel universe that was much worse than this one to save our world and basically just bring about the world that we know as a kind of replacement for this other world that act, that was the case but that is no more, and um, that that he was one of the the Christian rebels in this other world who saved it. And and basically that through his fiction, or at least that his fiction is how this event registered in this world, uh, he was able to save us from uh, what he calls the Black Iron Prison, this other very much darker world. And and he's completely convinced that this is true, and he's he's describing it very forthrightly throughout the essay, and, 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 and he's very unapologetic. So part of me was like, well, is he just playing a trick? Is he just basically turning his lecture into a Philip K. Dick story? Or does he really believe this? And, and, and yeah, and the whole idea of like, well, this actually happened to me. Is that just one more mindfuck? Right. That he's piling on, ti- on top of an already tottering pile of mindfuckery? Yeah, exactly. But it became quite obvious after his death that he was not kidding around. I mean, he wrote, I don't know how long the exegesis was, but... His uh, his files, eight thousand pages, right? Eight thousand pages of notes that he wrote over, uh, I think, an eight year period, from uh, the mm-hmm. time of this transcendent uh, kind of mystical event to his death. He was basically just spent his nights trying to figure out what had happened. So something definitely happened. Yeah. And, uh, so just to, to back it up a little bit, so the mystical events in particular that. Uh, he underwent well he went underwent a whole bunch of them and there's actually a really good comic by R. Crumb called the uh, what is it the religious experience of Philip K. Dick that tells the story pretty well but very briefly in February and March of 1974 Dick had a series of experiences that were kicked off by one particular event 
he had undergone surgery for an impacted wisdom tooth, and they'd shot him full of sodium pentothal, which is an anesthetic, but it's also, I believe it used to be called truth serum. It's something that would be administered to, I don't know, like captured prisoners to lower their resistance to questioning. Anyway, so he was high on sodium pentothal, and a young woman showed up at his door with the pain medication he needed, and she was wearing one of those Christian fish symbols, like a little golden fish symbol. You know, and like yeah. American listeners will be familiar with this from bumper stickers that have the fish and sometimes like the word Christ written on the inside, but the, the fish is this Christian symbol. And Dick became sort of fascinated with it and fascinated in the old-fashioned sense of like almost mesmerized by it and asked her what it was. And she was like, oh, well, this is a Christian symbol. And in that moment, he said later, he underwent what he called anamnesis, an unforgetting. Like he suddenly remembers a past existence in the early years of the Christian era, like maybe around AD 70. And he has this vision of secret Christians who are living under Roman rule and are living in fear of being discovered and being captured and tortured and murdered. And he has this whole vision of this secret Christian world rebelling against Roman authority, although to what end and what purpose, I suppose, was not immediately apparent to him. And then subsequent to that, he had just a series of blisteringly weird experiences. So he lay awake all night one night as he had thousands and thousands and thousands of abstract, vividly colored images, as he thought of it, fired into his brain. He felt that there was a pink laser beam from outer space that was like a beam of pure information that was beaming all of these images into his head, thousands of them, just every second, you know, frame after frame after frame of, as he, he said, like, you know, perfectly painted Miro's or Kandinsky's or whatever. He claimed to have heard a voice merging out of, I think, the Beatles song Strawberry Fields Forever, which was a big hit at the time. It was playing on the radio. And he had a vision that this voice told him that his son, Christopher, had an inguinal hernia that was going to kill him if it was left unattended. And so, at least according to Dick's own telling of the story, rushed Christopher to hospital, told him he has an inguinal hernia, and the doctors are very skeptical, and then examined the child and realized, in fact, this was true and that it was potentially a fatal condition. And so this voice had told Dick what he needed to know to save his son's life. A whole bunch of things like this. He later, as time went on, became convinced that there was an entirely, I won't say alien consciousness because that makes it sound like you know aliens like from outer space, but like not him. A consciousness of somebody who was not him was smarter and better and just like a great person. I think he, he called this person Thomas. And this Thomas was, he believed, a figure from that early Christian period. Somebody who was living, not, it was not like a, uh, the way Dick saw it was like, it's not like a ghost came to visit him or something like that. that. This voice that was in his head, this person who he felt was actually living in his body, was simultaneously living a whole separate life, you know, ostensibly 2,000 years before. And 
Dick was convinced that for a period of time, his consciousness and Thomas's were sort of fused somehow. Experiences like this convinced Dick, among other things, that time itself was, if not a complete and outright illusion, at least not what it seemed. He was convinced, as I say, not that Thomas was a ghost that was visiting him, but Thomas was a person who was living in some completely different time at the same time as his, and somehow they just had their wires crossed. And so Dick, one of Dick's ideas was that, in fact, time itself is an illusion generated by some malignant, cruel force or entity. Sometimes he called it the Black Iron Prison a kind of prison world, and it's always a little bit unclear. Is he talking about a world, or is he talking about some entity or intelligence? Dick himself was never really 100% clear on it, and those 8,000 pages of the exegesis were written as an attempt to ask every conceivable question about his experiences, and he came up with one explanation after another. So I should say, by way of preface, that even when we're saying about this essay, if you think this world bad, you should see some of the others. When we say Dick believes X or Dick asserts the truth of Y, it's actually a little more complicated than that because he never stopped for the eight years that he was alive after these experiences of 1974. He never stopped trying to explain them. He never stopped questioning really fundamental things like, does time exist? And he never came up with any real answers like in the sense of them being permanent answers. There are definitely some tendencies in his thought, and I think the tendencies revealed in this essay give us a pretty good idea of some of the more invariable aspects of his interpretations of the events of 2374. But even so, it's worth mentioning right from the beginning that Dick's whole enterprise around understanding these experiences, the whole exegesis process, uh, was in a sense not only unfinished at his death, it was just a mound of manuscript notes, but but like unfinishable. It was, I mean, certainly he hoped for some kind of grand final revelation, that he hoped that he would finally turn one last corner and it would all make sense. But it's pretty clear from his surviving notes that he never really had that realization. And so what we're talking about is an essay that is a snapshot of him in the middle of this process of trying to figure it all out. But at the same time, it can tell us an awful lot about some of the more basic aspects of Philip K. Dick's kind of worldview. Absolutely. And it's also a, if you just kind of extract this essay from the corpus of what he, uh, what he wrote, it's interesting in and of itself as a piece of philosophical writing. It's chock full of interesting ideas that that touch on the weird. (laughs) And that's an understatement. Yeah. It has one very great advantage over trying to discuss the exegesis as a whole, which is that it only presents one idea. I mean, there's a few different ideas, but it really is bearing down on one particular vision. Right. And and so we can kind of talk about that particular idea rather than sort of just diving into the endless pluriform philosophy soup that is the exegesis.
the first thing he does in the essay is he points out that great ideas, which are very rare, have a kind of built-in aura of self-evidence. They, when, they, when you have them, they seem obvious. And uh, like a great idea doesn't just change your present and your future, it actually changes your past. So when you get this really good idea, in, let's say in fiction, it's, uh, it, basically you realize that you were working towards this idea all along. And how could you not have seen it? You know, oh, that's what I was trying to get at. That, so, so that's the anamnesis part, that when you get a really good idea it actually retroactively reconfigures your whole kind of thought process leading up to the arrival or advent of the idea. So that's an interesting thing because it relates to the content of this particular idea that he wants to share. That idea is that there are many universes. That's as simple as that, I think, that he came upon this kind of science fiction idea that there are pluriform universes that overlap like film transparencies and that there are two forms of time. There's the time that is imminent to a particular universe, so the time that we experience, our past, present, and future. And then there's a lateral axis, another time uh, that can slice into our time and transform it. But when it does that, it doesn't just transform the present and future. It actually goes back and transforms the past. So he puts it into... Um, at least two of his books, so Man in the High Castle and Flow My Tears, a Policeman Said. In these books, characters shift from one universe to another, and when they do, the whole context changes. The entire, the past, the present, the future, the whole story of the cosmos is basically altered at a deep level, and a character may not even notice that it's happening. He could, but he could also just fit into the new world. And it's the reader that registers that we're not in the same world. That's what happens in Flow My Tears. But the point is that what Dick is asking himself in this essay is, how do the people in the universe experience it when this other time, this lateral time, that lateral axis of time comes in and changes everything? I, I, I was trying to think of a way to express what he's talking about because it's actually it's really not easy to wrap your head around the idea of an alternate axis of time that can change the past and it's especially difficult to imagine what it would be like to inhabit a universe in which that sort of thing was possible so let's try this on for size and jf you can tell me if you think i'm off base or not Perhaps a, a good way to describe what Dick's on about is to imagine that I'm playing a game like Sim Life or, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. one of those Sim games where you pilot a little avatar around and you give, you give him a job and a place to live and you make sure that he's attending to, you know, his diet and he needs to exercise and he meets people and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's a game, right? Well, imagine a game sort of like that. We don't have to be too literal about you know, what game this is really like, but some, some game in which you're piloting a little avatar around and making choices about his life. Only imagine that the characters in the game, like the avatars, the one that you're pushing around and the various characters that he meets, imagine that they're all sentient. Like they experience their world, like inside the game, they experience it as real, just like the way that we experience our life is real. The way you at home listening to this on your Victrola will look around your living room and experience that as your reality. Okay, so imagine these avatars in this game, like the inside the game reality is their reality. 
Okay, so outside the game, you as a player, you say you want to make your avatar stronger. So you decide to get him in the gym and he works out and then now he's stronger, right? But the character, the avatar, thinks that that's all his idea. Your commands are experienced by him subjectively as his own will. So he he experiences this sudden motivation to get in shape as being like a change that he's motivated in his life. Okay, so... Already you can kind of see this layer of what Philip K. Dick liked to call occlusion, right? Where there's some truth, but it's occluded, it's clouded over, it's, it's occulted, it's hidden. Okay, so imagine that you as the player of this game, you're dissatisfied by how the game has gone. Like, let's say you made certain threshold decisions about what kind of characteristics he has, and those were maybe bad decisions. Uh, they've led to stagnant or even disastrous play. And so you decide that you're going to change the world around your character a little bit. You're going to give him a nicer place to live, for instance. Now, you've made the change such that, you know, when you make it, for the character, it's always been this way. The avatar doesn't wake up one day and find himself in a, you know, a, a beautiful moss-covered 16th century Suffolk cottage. <laughs> he doesn't just wake up in one and, like, last night he was in some apartment in New York City and now he's in this cottage and he doesn't just wake up and say, whoa, what the fuck, I was living somewhere else yesterday. There was no yesterday. The time of creation, the time in which you as the player of this game, the sim game, that time is not his time. The time of creation, which is, say, your time as the game player, can undo the avatar's time. So when you created a new upgraded life for him, it was a life that already came with its own history baked into it. So let's imagine that you gave him a 16th century Suffolk cottage to live in with centuries of moss that has grown picturesquely on its slate roof. That's one of the attributes of the cottage as you built it. Like you built that cottage wholesale, but when you built it, you also built in this whole history of 500 years into it. It's one of the attributes of the cottage. You just invented it, but the avatar doesn't know anything about this. From the avatar's point of view, this cottage has always existed. Yeah. From the point of view of the avatar, he's always lived in it. He has no memory of this other time because it wasn't time that existed linearly as it were behind him. It's just a discarded draft of, of an ongoing play that the, that the player is engaged with. So there's a an, there's one arrow of time within the fictional or simulated universe, and then the author outside or the 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 player is able to alter things retroactively within that world. So it's and this is something anyone who's written fiction knows. Like if you write screenplays or novels, I mean, you you're constantly retconning. That's the term that that I've been taught to use. You retcon the past so that it so that oh okay well. This was supposed to happen this way, but actually this this female character will be working in a beauty shop instead of working in a government office. It's more convenient, but the, the character remains the same, but you change their entire context in order to suit the story, right? Dick gives two uh, kind of similes to try to explain what he means. So he two scenarios that he, you know, he works out to try to to demonstrate to his audience what he's talking about. The first one is he's like imagine a god who uh, can don different universes from day to day. So almost like the sorcerer in um, Sorcerer's Apprentice with who, whose robe is you know, covered in stars and moons, kind of representative of the cosmos. So, so God wears one particular universe. 
but then changes his mind and he goes, oh, I'm going to take off this universe in which the uh, allies won the Second World War and I'll put on this universe today in which the allies lost the war. And then everything changes for the people in the universe. But again, they can't necessarily notice it because the whole context changes. So it's kind of a nightmarish vision, really, when you think about it. And then the other the other simile he offers is the idea of a, a patron of the arts who insists, who tells his servants to change a particular painting over the mantelpiece every week. So every week the servants have to replace the painting that's hanging there. But one day they run out of paintings. So because they've been ordered to do this, what they do instead is they alter the painting that's there. So they paint out a tree and add a little girl sitting in the grass. And then the patron of the arts wakes up and looks at the painting and he's like, he's not quite sure. He's, he says... Well, it it looks different, but it it's the same. And the patron here is playing the part of, of Dick, who clued in to the fact that things had changed and yet remain the same in a weird way. So his one of his examples is you walk into the your bathroom and you reach for the light switch, but all of a sudden you notice that the light switch is on the left rather than the right. And I'll never forget this example because it happened to me when I lived in Toronto. I, in my kitchen... In the apartment I was living at, the the light switch had always been on the left and then one day was on the right. Or at least that's how I experienced it. And I had this discussion about it with my then girlfriend. It was really it was really disconcerting because I was completely convinced that the light switch had switched sides. What did she what did she what did your girlfriend say? Well, she insisted that it had she... always been there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but you had you had this kind of memory, almost like a somatic memory, like where your body yeah. automatically reaches for the switch. You had this somatic memory of it being somewhere else. A, a somatic memory and I had an actual like I, I could remember instances where I had for some reason, reach for the light switch, and it couldn't have been, you know, I was convinced that that had ha- that it had switched. There's a very uh, kind of a, a more um, widespread example of this uh, in the the famous Berenstein Bears uh, meme. Have you have you heard about that, Phil? No. So Berenstein, Berenstein Bears, is that what they're called? So the, I think it's yeah. It's- Bar- I think it's Berenstain, isn't it? Yeah. Or actually, well, damn it, I'm going to look it up for once and for all. Aha! <laughs> what, what, before you look it up, what? how do you think it's spelt? I think it's B-E-R-E-N-S-T-A-I-N. Yeah, that's ex- okay. that is the right way it was spelt. Ah, I was right. Yeah. I can't believe it. I just I, I just looked at it on, uh, on my... Uh, computer machine yeah yes i was right and yet everybody remembers it as being bernstein right Right. or something like that s-t-e-i-n so so this is a a series of books from the 70s and 80s children's books that people there is it it was kind of an internet phenomenon a few years ago when people started realizing that it had been spelt with a nay all along like bernstein but everyone remembered it as bernstein and uh there was a theory going around the internet that uh, the universe had been changed because <laughs> how yeah. could everybody be wrong? And there's a name for that that you were talking about that the other day, Phil, the Mandela effect, right? That, that yeah. people remember Nelson Mandela dying in the eighties in prison, but it, of course he didn't die till uh, much later. And yet, and it became, it became the founder of modern South Africa and did, right. all, you know, did all that, all the really yeah. All the great things that he accomplished happened at a time when people are, a, a, a surprising number of people are convinced he was dead. Right. Philip K. Dick might look at these examples and say that those are 
instances where the narrative was changed on us and that we have a residual memory of the way things were before the change. So he's entertaining this, this possibility as a real thing in this essay. But what, what's interesting to me about this is that he, at one point he says, okay, so he's talking about Man in the High Castle and he's talking about Mr. Tagami, um, who uh, is he's a character in the, in the story. And for one, in, for one moment, he has a vision of a world where the Allies won the war because in Man in the High Castle, it's a story that's set in, in a world where the, the Axis won. So Germany and Japan won the war. But he has a vision of our world, the real world. He quickly just runs back to his to the comfort of his own reality and forgets about it. And then Philip K. Dick asks the reader in the lecture that we're discussing, he asks, I, I would dare anyone to find an explanation for how this happened to Mr. Tagami. It's weird because when I'm reading, it, I'm like, "Well, I have an explanation." I was, I felt like raising my hand because the explanation, <laughs> the explanation is that Dick, as the author, made this happen. That that just got me thinking about wondering what the what is the nature of an author's relation to the fictional world he creates, insofar as the inhabitants of that world are concerned. Like, how would a character in a fiction describe or experience? the relationship he has with the author of the, of the fictional world that he inhabits. And that's a, it's a type of causality, but it's not traditional causality. Because causality for an author, let's say you're an author writing a book, a novel. Causality is a tool you have. You can do anything you want with it. You can change laws of physics in your fictional universe. You can change them preemptively. Like if you're writing a fantasy novel, you'll design a world. You'll think, dream up a world in which magic and not physics governs reality. Or you could change them, you know, right in, in media rest, right in the middle of the story. You could just change the way things go and, and see how the characters react to that or whatever. The point is that there is a relationship like just assuming or entertaining the idea that you mentioned before that the characters in a fiction have a type of sentience, okay? If we just assume that, then we can, we can wonder about what is the nature of the relation between the author of the fiction and the characters. That looks to me like a new type of causality. It's a creative causality or an act of creation that can change everything but it, it is essentially a causal. It is not reducible to the chain, the sensory motor chain of cause and effect that governs the fictional world because that whole logic is part of what the author can alter. In a weird way, the lecture that Dick is giving feels to me like a reflection on storytelling and fiction making. Like there's a a precedent to this lecture and to, to Dick's work in English literature. And that's, I think, Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is very much it's a very similar reflection on the, the magician who can alter reality in order to redeem the world. Mm -hmm. So what Prospero is doing in The Tempest is that he's creating a drama. He's altering reality for the people who betrayed him in order to bring them into a world where the betrayal is annulled and uh, things are restored to a, a type of innocence. I found that interesting because Philip K. Dick doesn't seem to, to make the connection, uh, and maybe there is no connection, but the connection that I make between 
aesthetic creation or aesthetic design or uh, I guess artistic creation and the kind of change he's talking about. But if you see our world as a fiction or as an aesthetic thing, then it becomes easier to imagine this new kind of causality which can cut in and change both the present and the past. It's interesting that Dick as a fiction writer and somebody who in this essay is explicitly reflecting on how for years he's been writing alternate reality fictions without having any kind of theory for how they might ever actually work. And one of the things he's saying is, well, much to my surprise, I discover I was constantly writing about something real. I just thought it was fiction. Considering that he's explicitly self-reflexive, about his work as a fiction writer and the unstable relationship between his fictional realities and what he's come to see as reality or a surprising aspect of reality. It's funny that when he thinks about the artificer or the, the you know, God or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the figure that's doing the storytelling, he doesn't think of it in terms the of... The divine programmer. Yeah, he calls it the, the programmer. So he uses a, a rather different metaphor, not of aesthetic creation, but of... Well, I mean, I suppose computer programming can be a kind of aesthetic creation. Uh, not so much in this time when he wrote. It was, I mean, no, not an aesthetic creation. So why do you suppose he did? Why do you suppose he did that? Because what you're doing actually is you're pushing his idea just a little bit further than he himself was apparently willing to take it. And you're saying, well, what Dick is imagining here is that the universe that we live in that the fundamental nature of it, you know, this is the question that philosophers have been asking for as long as philosophy. What's the fundamental nature of reality? So your answer that you're offering here is that what the world is really made out of is stories. And this is a call back to our, the last show we recorded where we set out to talk about Alistair Crowley's magic and theory and practice and ended up talking about like maybe the first few paragraphs of it and uh, spinning off in a variety of directions. But where we ended up was thinking about a, a world picture, uh, an idea of the universe in which the fundamental thing it's made out of is stories. And the fundamental nature of the world is artistic creation, that everything is aesthetic, which doesn't mean it's beautiful, uh, but it means that the reason that there's something rather than nothing is because somebody is creating it out of motivations that, that if we were to try and understand them, perhaps the word artistic lends itself best to whatever that is. I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to read the, uh, the ending of The Tempest just because it suggests that Shakespeare had a similar idea. So Prospero takes off his robe and puts away his staff and says, our revels are now ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and melted into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve and like this insubstantial pageant fade, leaving not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Such stuff as dreams are made on. What are dreams made of? Well, I mean, it's that's a good question. But to me, it seems like at some point, you're going to have to settle for something like story. The, the dreams are made out of narrative. The dreams are made out of, mm -hmm. of movements of becoming, things becoming something else. And that there's a logic to the becoming itself. It's not the logic of the mechanical causal world. It's a logic of narrative. It's a logic of, of the psyche. 
it, it, it seems that what Prospero is saying there is that the world is made out of story, as you just pointed out. And also, some would argue that that's exactly how everyone saw the world until the advent of modern science. And that what Dick is doing is he's wrestling with two magisteria. You know, on the one hand, the world as a place, uh, as a space in which objects exist and interact causally, mechanically. And on the other hand, the world as a, as a theater where a drama is happening. And he's kind of asking himself what comes before, you know, the, the mechanics of the causal blind chain of, of change or the unfolding meaningful or meaning-making drama. Even a, a diehard, like, hardcore physicist who, you know, adheres to a very strong and deterministic worldview is doing that from within a forum where this worldview has some kind of meaning or purpose. We're, we're all constantly kind of teetering between these two worlds, the, the world of just objects interacting, billiard balls bouncing against one another, and then the world in which our actions have meaning and purpose. It seems that the metaphysical picture that Dick is painting in this lecture is one in which the cosmos is restored to its original meaning-making substance. It's, again, the stuff dreams are made on. And he's positing that time, as we understand it now in the modern world, is just one tool for this creative force that is actually generating reality. The whole question of time becomes very vexed. I mean, obviously, right? Because where we started was talking about time as if it's a corridor that we walk down and this new kind of time that Dick is talking about, this lateral time is almost like a, uh, a hallway that branches off at 90 degrees from the hallway that we're walking down. So already we're thinking about a, an orthogonal kind of time, a time that is uh, accessed differently somehow. And Dick makes a move where he's saying, well, the time of the art, I'm I'm saying the artificer, you know, the time of the programmer, the time of God, whatever we want to call it, the the, the one who's uh, calling the shots, that that time is eternity, right? It's not our time. That time is one of the tools that the programmer can use. It's something that's in our reality, but it's not necessarily a part of the programmer's reality. The only difficulty is that I feel like Dick doesn't really successfully manage to exorcise time from the programmer either, partly because he introduces a second player. So he says, actually, there's not one player. There's two, a light player and a dark player. The dark player would be perhaps, we could say, a personification of chaos and entropy. It's the force that tends to the dissolution of things. And so he sees the light player as the one that is building things, that's creating things. And he imagines it as almost like a cosmic chess game. Actually, to me, it called to mind the card game played between Sun Ra and the Overseer in Sun Ra's 
there's a movie with Sun Ra in it. It's kind of black exploitation sci-fi film called Space is the Place. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, worth checking out. It plays out that scenario where you have like a good and a bad force, light and dark, positive, negative, uh, yin and yang, whatever. You have these two forces facing one another across a table, and each time they make a move, it's manifested as some change in human reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and when you're showing it in Space is the Place, you're showing the play as something that takes place in time. And you can say, well, that's just a kind of a, you know, a convention of fictional representation that's necessary to make it comprehensible to us at all. Perhaps the play itself takes place entirely outside of our time. I'm happy to acknowledge that as a possibility, but it has to take place inside of some kind of time, surely, because we're talking about states of play that change the nature of reality. Basically, Dick is saying that you create successive alternate realities, and each one is sort of like a draft that's leading towards a better, more complete, more put-together, just more rational universe. And we live in some intermediate universe that isn't as bad as some of the ones that are possible, but it's we don't live in the kingdom of heaven either, so we're somewhere in the middle. Right. right. Um, Dick is talking about that procession of versions as something that has, in a sense, always already been decided. The play has always already happened, and what we experience as time is simply us moving through successive drafts. Oh, yeah. It becomes um, very Calvinistic at one point. Because he, yeah. he basically, he argues that the dark counterplayer, so the, the devil figure or the chaos or yin figure, he lays it out as on a spectrum. So he's like the sequence of universes. At one end of the spectrum, you have the, the paradise world that we're all moving towards slowly. So it's a version of this universe in which everything is okay. And then mm-hmm. at the other end of the spectrum, you have basically what he calls slavery and utter pain, the absolute hell world. And that the, the dark counterplayer's job is to try to move us towards the hell world, but the divine programmer has already accounted for all the dark counterplayer's moves and that every move is inexorably moving us towards the paradise world. So it's a yeah. predestination theory. And that's my problem with, with Dick, when we can get to that, because you, you raise a very important point, which is, he basically just transposes time or projects it onto another level. So now yes. the problem of time ceases to be our time, but the problem of time has just moved over to the time of God. Because even early right. in the essay, he discounts the idea, he discredits the idea of eternity. He says it makes less sense to him than this idea of parallel universes, that eternity always implies a sort of time. He says it himself. So mm-hmm. the time of the creator then becomes the metaphysical problem of time. Well, how does the creator experience time? When God changes the universe, how does he experience these changes? And how could that not be in just as linear a form of time as our own? Unless there's a sequence of universes at God's level, too, in which things become very refracted on multiple. <laughs> it becomes very, very confusing very quickly. So, And, right. and that's, that's one of the reasons why Philip K. Dick, although I have tremendous respect and admiration, I have like, like a kind of gut resistance to his kind of philosophy, it feels to me like no matter what, the stratum of value is moved outside of our world. And our world is kind of uh, reduced to a purely kind of utilitarian It's a projection. Yeah. 
So it's, there's a Platonism in that, not Plato's Platonism, but a kind of traditional, uh, conventional Platon, Platonism to what he's doing. And that this world just becomes, therefore, an illusion that can point yeah. us to a real world. And I find that not super helpful ethically. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, well, where, where does the ethical problem come in? Well, it's the old ethical problem that Nietzsche pointed out. I, th- I think he had really good reasons to do it. It's that it saps all value out of this world. And it instrumentalizes this world. It puts it in service of an idea that certain people have. And so it's the idea of the revolutionary whose ideal polity can justify any number of atrocious acts now in this world because the end determines the means. There's an ascetic quality to it. And I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think Dick was this. I don't think that he was uh, guilty of being, he wasn't a nihilist, that's for sure. Um, no. And he was trying to, to basically climb his way out of a, a very difficult psychic situation. But on a purely philosophical level, I agree with you that he doesn't solve the riddle of time with his the model that he presents in this lecture. It's worth noting, by the way, that some of the things that we're, we're kind of falling into this um, uh, probably unavoidable pattern of talking about these as if these are positions that Dick holds. And it's worth noting that there's some things that he asserts really forthrightly in this essay that actually he didn't assume at all, you know, elsewhere in the project that is the exegesis. Like, for example, he says, well... A skeptic could argue that these different versions of our world, there's no reason for it to move from worse to better. It could just as easily move the other way, from better to worse. And Dick just dismisses that idea out of hand. He's like, I just find that completely unconvincing. And he doesn't really tell us why, except for maybe making analogy to like a writer. That's a telling analogy. He's like, well, a writer isn't knowingly going to create successive drafts of a story and making the story more incoherent or more boring or like worse. Um, no, but you could also counter that a, a writer will never write. You know, there's, some people sometimes complain that there aren't, there aren't enough uh, utopia novels or too many dystopia novels. That's because you can't write mm-hmm. a story with a utopia. Nothing's happening. For right. a story to happen, you need conflict. And you need, yeah. you need a, a clash of forces. And without that, maybe that's no maybe, maybe that's why he insists on there being a dark player. Yeah. It's, it's necessary for the story. Right. But the thing is that, you know, it, throughout this essay, he's showing an a, assumption that God or the, the light player or the programmer, whatever we want to call it, is good. Yeah. And he just accepts that as axiomatic. But if you look at the exegesis elsewhere, that is, in fact, an idea that plagues him constantly is the possibility that he's being taken in, that this is just one more layer of occlusion, one more layer of bafflement and maya. Uh, The world that he's inhabiting, maybe it is organized by a completely mad and utterly malevolent entity right how would you know if it was how would you know if it wasn't you know dick is always approaching these questions from a position of extremely asymmetrical information we talked about this i think when we were talking to eric davis right recently um that he okay so from dick's subjective point of view he's lying in bed and boom gets hit with a pink laser you know or he's suffering from a impacted wisdom tooth and boom, gets a vision of parallel reality 2,000 years before. This shit just breaks in on him. 
One of his last novels is called The Divine Invasion. And that's a pretty good name for how this stuff appeared to him, as it were, phenomenologically, like what it felt like to him. It felt like stuff breaking in from the outside. If we get back to our idea of um, there being not a programmer, but like a storyteller, right? Mm -hmm. it's a, it would be as if the storyteller, as if you, J.F. Martell, writing a uh, screenplay in which the characters somehow were sentient. It would be as if you had somehow reached into the world of the screenplay and addressed your characters directly, right? Right. That's what it feels like to him, the feeling of almost as if a, like a light being turned on you. Yeah. But you don't know what's behind the light. You don't know what it is. You just know how it appears. So how it appears to you, okay, pink laser, thousands of perfectly painted Kandinsky's blasted into my brain over a period of eight hours, you know, that's how these things manifest. But what they mean or who's behind it, you know, that is all kept in the dark. And so the exegesis in many ways is a project of trying to reason out from very, very partial appearances. Yeah. Um, and appearances that he never 100% can quite convince himself ever really happened. Like he has the same experience that lots of people who've had paranormal experiences of one sort and another have, where you just go around for the rest of your life saying, did that really happen? Yeah. And you can see how it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole of paranoia where you're like, wait a minute, what if I'm remembering it in a certain way, but that memory is itself part of the action of this outside force? You can ask endless skeptical questions. And ultimately, because you're in a position of, extremely asymmetrical information you can never really decide and so dick is always in a position of having to ask like okay whatever it is on the other end of this of these phenomena is it nice is it nasty does it mean me well does it mean me ill you can reason well certain things good things happen like i discovered christopher's inguinal hernia so that's good so therefore it must be a positive entity but then at the same time, I went crazy shortly afterwards and tried to kill myself, and my wife and child left me, so maybe that's just part of its longer game to fuck me up. obviously is now like a trope and some people in philosophy take it very seriously. Although I know that Dick had his doubts about what he was saying uh, in France that day, there's something about the model he's presenting that it's almost kind of a, an archetype of our times that bears looking at and, uh, and thinking about. So for example, there's uh, Nick Bostrom. He's a philosopher at Oxford. And in 2003, he wrote a paper called are you living in a computer simulation? And he was one of the first, I think, to argue that logically, rationally, absolutely, like rationally, we are living, we are most probably living in a simulated world. And this is yeah. a view that was espoused publicly by Elon Musk, you know? <laughs> he's just, he's not just anybody. Like, worth no worth uh, noting, I'll, by the way, uh, my main dude, Lionel Snell, uh, came up with this idea in the 1970s too. 
And he came up with this paradoxical way of reasoning out basically the same idea that later more credentialed or accredited philosophers had, that if it's possible that we're living in a simulated world, then it is overwhelmingly probable that we are living in a simulated world. Right. Because what are the chances you're living in the original, you know, one one in an infinite number of worlds? So, so this and- is an idea. This is an idea that I think sort of starts bubbling up from the uh, '60s and '70s, and you know, starts off as a truly wild idea, and it has been getting steadily more plausible to the point that now parallel universe is almost a, become a, like a cliche. One one uh, philosophical knot that I'd like to try to undo uh, here is uh, at the very beginning of the essay, uh, Dick paints the picture of a god who changes uh, universes like he changes clothes. So he dons a different cosmos on day mm-hmm. one, for, you know, and then on day two. And then Dick asks, how do the people in that universe experience the change? And that's kind of what starts the whole essay. And... Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because you could wonder, well, how are the people in each universe even the same? Like, let's say that the world changed now to a version where Germany and Japan won the war. First of all, well, would I still exist in that world? Probably not. But even if I did exist in both worlds, on what basis can I argue that it's the same me in each world? But that's the first scenario. Then it's almost like the book of Genesis. You know how there are two there are two stories of creation in Genesis. There's like God created, you know, he said there will be, let there be light, et cetera. He created man. He created uh, male and female. He created them, blah, blah. And then there's the whole story of Eden, which kind of contradicts or, or nuances the first one. It's the same uh-huh. with this. Then he goes into a different scenario where God is changing the one world with different possibilities. But what is i guess what i'm asking is this if the past can be changed how how do you even exist like if you cannot be described in terms of the choices you've made if god's in charge of your choices just like the players in charge of the sim characters choices as you mentioned earlier how is there a you at all or how does how do you matter how does your happiness matter because essentially According to Dick's vision here, and I'm not saying this is Philip K. Dick's uh, final vision, but what he's the picture is painting here is that all these different versions of you already exist in all these parallel universes on the level of you know the wardrobe time of God looking at his various universes and choosing which one to wear. We all exist. So who is it that makes it from one world to another towards the better one? What is this this entity that can skip, that can shift? that can move from one world to another without changing itself completely. Is there a transcendent principle in each one of us that allows us to switch worlds just like God does? Do you understand the problem I'm Yeah, raising? I do. That's a really interesting question. I'd never considered that. Because it, it kind of all hinges on that. And that's another problem I, I'd, I have with this kind of simulationist theory is that it doesn't leave any room for free will. And I know free will is an unpopular idea, but... Sorry, it's like the most given self-evident fact we have. We can't account for it, but that doesn't make it false. It doesn't falsify it at all. I mean, it's asserted every time, you know, like there's an absurdity to every argument on free will because there's always, if I try to convince you that free will doesn't exist, my, my, the very fact of my arguing it presupposes your capacity to listen to me and make a decision. Like um, mm-hmm. if there is no free will, there's no point in talking about it. 
In fact, there's no point right. in talking about anything. Um, so, so that's that's one thing. Because what is it that is preserved from one world to another? When Mister Tagami shifts into the other world, what is it that's moving? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. Because actually, I think if you're being consistent within the vision that Dick lays out in this essay, then it's hard to imagine any principle of continuity, except that for certain claims that Dick makes in this essay to be true, there has to be that principle of continuity. Because he says, like towards the end, he says, well, this is what I think is going on. And of course, it's one of a million and one different possible explanations that he came up with, that there's this parallel reality in which the secret Christians, he calls them the secret Christians, are trying to overthrow the slave regime of that much, much worse world. And in that much worse world, the slave world, the world of what Dick called the Black Iron Prison. In that world, he was killed in February 1974. And Dick's explanation here is that it was a gift to him, a kind of an act of grace, a kindness. He actually implies that this is how he knows that God is good, because God did this for him that he was transposed into this better reality. You know, in the, in the worst reality, Richard Nixon is this absolutely, this monstrous hegemon, you know, this, this, this unshakable force of pure evil. In our world, he's merely silly and weak. And in, this, in that world, you know, Philip K. Dick and his fellow secret Christians try to overthrow him and were all killed in the process of doing so. In this world to which they've been transposed, Richard Nixon... Is, uh, is taken down relatively easily. And for Dick, this suggests, and he doesn't come out and say this, but this suggests that this world, however fucked up it is, is actually heaven, or at least it's a heaven compared to where he came from, which I, I guess you could sort of say that gives us the meaning of the title. If you think this world bad, you should, should see some of the others. Um, so that's actually a very positive thought, right? An almost unusually optimistic thought for Philip K. Dick. But the thing is, for that to be true, then we say, what exactly was it that was transposed? Dick insists that on some level, he retains a memory of that other time, and that what happened to him in 1974 was this kind of anamnesis, this unforgetting or I yeah. guess another way of putting it is remembering, that he remembers. So clearly there is some, for Dick, there is some common consciousness that is capable of remembering. But there's I suppose soul. if we, there's a, exactly, there's a soul. The funny thing is, I, I agree with you though, I'm not sure there's really a place for that soul given the purely, I don't know, mechanical working out of an alternate world's hypothesis. Un- unless you go to some kind of pantheistic vision where every person is just an instance of the divine programmer's consciousness. Uh, so right. that so that when Dick is saying, I was killed, what he's saying is that some avatar of the divine programmer was killed in 74 and I was, and then woke up here uh, as Philip K. Dick. 
and that that's a popular view as well that we're all kind of um, you know, this is Bernardo Castrop's theory that we're all dissociated alters of mind at large of this super mind that is the only reality and each one of us right. is a, it, like literally a psychological dissociation a kind of a fragment that believes itself to be separate of this this one mind it'd be hard for me to express the dis, my disgust with this idea like my <laughs> instinctive uh it just how it just repels me for all kinds of reasons because it it seems to me to completely devalue this world and the choices each one of each one of us makes but yet that seems to be the only logical explanation as to unless we're each of us is unless each of us is a little transcendent god putting on different uh universes that seems to be the only possible explanation it's like I, I went point I was reading the essay and I was thinking, okay, well, God in Dick's vision, as presented in this particular lecture, in Dick's vision, the universe, uh, the God looking at the universe is equivalent to maybe Tolstoy looking at his manuscript of War and Peace. So, what is the nature of that relationship? Well, Tolstoy know, knows War and Peace inside out. He can see it as a whole. He can flip to any one moment within it, or he can look at it. So, for him, he's seeing past, present, and future. At one and the same time, he sees the the whole manuscript as a novel, as a whole. He can go in and change a scene. He can change things retroactively. He can change the motivations. And in a sense, all the characters are uh, f figments of his imagination. They're all basically Tolstoy, in a way. I, I will confess that it is extremely difficult not to fall into some form of idealistic monism when you start talking about these kinds of things. It's funny because in yours and my correspondence, and you know, this podcast has emerged out of hundreds of thousands of words that JF and I have written to one another. And in our conversation, this figure of idealist monism or monistic idealism, it keeps coming back. It chases it out through the door and it comes back through the window. If you're looking for an alternative to kind of plain vanilla materialism, you know, and you say the, the nature of the world is matter. That's the answer to that fundamental question that the Greeks were occupied with. The, the basic element that makes the universe is matter, right? And so somehow, you know, the problem that materialism has is, among other things, explaining how intelligence or how mind, how consciousness can emerge from matter, but that need not detain us for now. Uh, but if you are seeking a way out from materialism, if you say, I find its account of mind completely unsatisfying, then it's pretty hard not to sort of fall back on, the, uh, on a binary opposite, which is like, oh, well, if the fundamental nature of reality isn't matter, it must be mind. Because clearly we've got these two things, mind and matter, and we've never satisfactorily been able to explain how they interact or what they have to do with one another. If the nature of the universe is material, then we have yet to come up with an idea how, how mind emerges from it. Daniel Dennett wrote a book called Conscious Ex Consciousness Explained that tried to do it, but it really ends up being consciousness explained away because basically he says, oh, well, the experience of consciousness is epiphenomenal. Like, you, in other words, you just think you're conscious, which I think is a stupid cheat. That <laughs> irritates me. That, yeah. that, that really annoys me. Um, if, but if you don't accept that, then what are the alternatives? 
Well, then you have to figure out, well, then mind becomes, I mean, it's pretty easy to see how if matter isn't supreme, then something has to be supreme. So it's going to be mind, unless you are comfortable with some species of dualism where you say that there is mind and matter, but then you have to explain how they can interact with one another. Because all on its own, dualism suggests a kind of oil and water separation between these things. This suggests that nothing could ever possibly happen, ever. Yeah, that's been the problem that's beset dualism for hundreds of years. But this fifth cause that we've discussed uh, in previous episodes and that I brought up today in talking about the nature of the, the relationship between an author and his fictional world maybe gives us a little beginning of a hint as to how two worlds could interact it's uh it's not causal it's creative and um if you look at it that way then you could imagine how matter could exist as such and mind could exist as such but they they communicate or they interact aesthetically i don't know if anybody's ever developed this but i think it might hold promise another thing is that it's very easy i think to go down and end up in a kind of monistic idealism. But there have been alternatives. William James and Henry Bergson present what I think are viable alternatives to an absolute idealism where all that exists is a solipsistic God. That's an innately plural view of mind and matter, like that things are in their fundamental nature, plural and multifarious and multiplicitous. And this allows for the possibility that what you are, you know, or what Philip K. Dick is, has some kind of essential value in and of itself. That there's something about Philip K. Dick that can't be reduced to a substrate. Uh, I find that ethically more um, attractive than, uh, than the alternatives. idea that we're living in a fake world, we're living in a fictional world is gaining currency today. It's becoming more and more prevalent. And I think that's because, you know, and this is another thing that I think it's because we literally do live in fictional worlds. We live in our devices. We live on the screens. We live in simulations. And so it starts to make more and more sense that the whole world would be a kind of simulation, you know, when the difference between a picture of Mount Everest and the site of Mount Everest, when the difference decreases every day, because as, as you know, the definition of our photos increases as, as uh, video comes into the equation, as, as it becomes, as virtual reality becomes increasingly powerful as a medium, the difference between reality and simulation narrows. So, it's no surprise to me that monistic idealism is an attractive philosophical avenue today, more than ever. Even physicists are going down that path. Um, mm. But the the question the question for me is is this is this just uh, an effect of the type of lives we live? Is this something a Portuguese fisherman who's never seen a computer, uh, if there is such a thing, <laughs> uh, would would buy? Would it make yeah. any sense to him? It seems to be the type of thinking that people who live in simulated 
environments would indulge in. Yes. And that's a really important question because, or, or that's a really important point to make, I think, because anytime you are working with a philosophical picture of the world and you find it is just a little too readily suggested by the everyday items in your world, you have to start wondering if you're not yeah. being suggested. I mean, so for example, Gordon White, who's a, an occultist who wrote a book called Starships, I think in that book, and he's written a lot of stuff, somewhere he says that he really actually doesn't like the modern fad for multiple universe theories because for him, it just manages to be another way of repackaging plain vanilla materialism. So, so if you imagine a, a particularly strong version of a multiple worlds hypothesis, which is held by you know one interpretation of quantum physics, which is the idea that every possible change that can exist in reality does exist in a parallel universe. Imagine a library, a kind of vast, infinite Borghessian library, uh, and you pick up a book from that library and it is Shakespeare's The Tempest, except instead of being the canonical text of The Tempest, it's the canonical text except the final period has been substituted with an asterisk. Sitting next to it is a version of the exact same book, but with only one difference, and the asterisk has become a question mark, and so on. And you can imagine that like every single character in this book mm. is subject to a permutation. For each one of those books, there's a separate universe in which that's the text of The Tempest, right? right. So you can imagine a truly infinite set of worlds. Well... As I understand White's argument, he's like, well, this just becomes a really easy way to account for anything magical that happens or anything that we might call paranormal. Anything that looks as if it puts pressure on a purely materialistic and mechanistic picture of the world. Anything that's odd, we can say, oh, well, that's possible in a parallel universe. And so mm. you turn every possibility into a material reality and you say oh it just exists in a parallel universe that we can't access but it exists so your way of dealing with the weirdness of reality is simply to come up with a loophole whereby every possible state of material existence exists so nothing that can manifest in material existence could ever possibly surprise us because it exists within, it still exists within a material framework. That's really interesting. That reminds me of Deleuze's problem with the uh, the concept of pos the possible versus the potential, right? The virtual. So uh -huh. Deleuze, Deleuze was he wasn't a big fan of everything's possible, all things are possible. Now, if you add up all the factors, if you co compute it, the computer can generate any possible uh, variation. His problem with that is that he doesn't talk about any type of actual potentiality of anything right now existing. It's just talking about, it's, it's translating our lived experience into a set of computational facts and then playing with those facts on a purely abstract level. It's like reducing events to statistics. It's the same abstraction that happens. Right. And yeah. um, so yeah. it, it is materialistic in the, in the uh, information theory sense that 
it, it translates everything into pure information. And at the level of pure information, any variation, any, any combination is possible. But instead of opening up uh, real avenues of becoming or change or events, you're actually just annulling events as such. You're reducing every event to just random permutations of a set of a definitive like facts or units of, of information. So that's the problem. And that's the problem I have yeah. with the simulationist theory. These are all ways of escaping this world, of escaping the absolute immediate reality of a one world that confronts us. And mm -hmm. um, like a philo philosophies that I personally dig are philosophies that challenge us to engage with a world in which things matter, you know, matter matters. <laughs> in which we matter, in which our decisions matter, right. in which the consequences of decisions we take matter. Yeah. And in which uh, weird events are important because they point to aspects of this world that we can't account for yet. And they open up new possibilities. They're just not, you can't just, just cancel them at the outset or reduce them to some kind of weird uh, anomaly in science when you do when you do scientific experimentation and an anomalies are expected but they're discounted right so you you'll have like weird freak results but you always average things out in order to you know identify the phenomenon in order to reach some kind of conclusion and that remi reminds me of the a distinction that I like between science and art is that science, as useful as it is, what it does is it takes anomalies and cancels them out in order to get to the general. It aims for a generalization. Whereas art, on the other hand, always tries to bust through all gener generalization to get to the anomaly, to the absolute singularity of a thing or an object or an event. Our philosophies should account for both, but at the same time, reality presents itself to us as a singular important thing. It doesn't present itself to us as a kind of like abstract scenario, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know how this relates to Dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what, hap what happens to us when we talk about Philip K. Dick is what happened to Dick when he talked about Philip K. Dick, is that right. you end up going down one of those uh, infinite mazes well, actually, there's a quote I wanted to read from Nick Bostrom's thing, Are You Living in a Computer, computer Simulation? He wrote, Many works of science fiction, as well as some forecasts by serious technologists and futurologists, predict that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. Let us suppose for a moment that these predictions are correct. One thing that later generations might do with their super powerful computers is run detailed simulations of their forebearers or of people like their forebearers. Because their computers would be so powerful, they could run a great many such simulations. Suppose that these simulated people are conscious, as they would be if the simulations were sufficiently fine-grained and if a certain quite widely accepted position in the philosophy of mind is correct. Then it could be the case that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original race, but to people simulated by the advanced descendants of an original race. It is then possible to argue that, if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. Therefore, if we don't think that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we are not entitled to believe that we will have descendants who will run lots of such simulations of their forebears. 
you can see how much how many assumptions are packed into an idea like that. And I think they apply in Dick's case as well. And earlier I was talking about how Dick seems to be struggling between two ways of seeing the world, one that is causal and mechanical and deterministic, and the other one that is open and, and story-based and dreamlike. And the dreamlike world is basically the world in which the myths were written. And the other world, the, the deterministic one, is the worldview in which science, modern science developed. And science fiction is continually preoccupied with using the one to talk about the other. Like, that's what science fiction is. It's using the kind of dreamlike world of story and myth to talk about determinism and mechanics and science. So the lecture presupposes that each universe has a kind of clear, causal, mechanistic nature that a programmer can come in and alter. So what he's touching on in this, in this lecture is a central philosophical problem of the modern world. It's how do we account for humanity in a worldview that seems to negate it or challenge it fundamentally? This reflects in other essays he wrote, the essays about androids and humans, for example, and the no novels such as um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which became Blade Runner. The question of Blade Runner is, what's the difference between a replicant and a human? Well, once the difference has been narrowed to the extent that the films do, like the films basically tell us the replicants are more human than humans. Well, at that point, we have to ask ourselves what, what it means to be human and in what sense do we transcend the purely mechanistic causes of our manifestation in this world? And it seems to me that what, what Philip K. Dick is doing in exegesis and throughout his career, he's, he's fighting to retain some essence of humanity in a world that seems bent on annulling that essence. That's right. And I think there's a heroic quality to what he's doing in that respect. Absolutely. I strongly agree. I mean, this gets back at something I was trying to articulate when we were talking to Eric Davis. He is, he's like his various heroes or protagonists. You know, he's this sort of schlubby, kind of broken guy. He's got his problems. Uh, he's got his little vanities and his little pockets of ignorance and, and meanness and so on. He's an ordinary, fallible, and very far from heroic person. And yet he's sort of thrown into a world that doesn't make sense or a world that superficially makes sense, but that on closer acquaintance is revealed as just fundamentally alien and unknowable. But the one thing that his heroes know and that Dick knows is that he is having this experience right now. And even if you, if you assume an idealistic idea of mind, you say... Well, all you are really is a disembedded fragment of God's mind. You're a little fragment of God's consciousness that has mistakenly come to believe itself to be independent and to come mistakenly to think that it's a finite creature. If you say that, that's sort of like saying you're just an android, right? Right. Uh, the figure of the android, in fact, becomes a really powerful and poignant image of the figure of somebody who has been thrown into a world and they don't understand what their nature, their being is. You think that you're an individual with free will going about making decisions and doing things, but actually you're, you're not. You're one of God's fingers or whatever. Puppet. Um, you're a puppet. But 
the thing is that there's a sort of sense that you get in, for example, the Blade Runner films, where it's sort of like, well, if you feel like a human, like that is to say you suffer like a human, you love like a human, you wonder like a human, you question like a human, you hurt like a human, you go through all of these things, in what pragmatic sense are you not human? And that's what's heartrending about the plight of the androids in Blade Runner is you realize that, yeah, they're, they're made by human beings. They're replicants. But in any real sense, they're humans. They're people. It's kind of the same thing. That's the same situation that Philip K. Dick or any of his Gnostic protagonists find themselves in. I might be a puppet. You know, I might just be a fragment of universal mind. Or, if we want to go with the materialist view of the world, I'm just a meat robot. I've been programmed to do certain things. I think I'm conscious, but a la Daniel Dennett, I'm really not, because consciousness is just an epiphenomenal experience. But there always seems to be a part of Dick that's insisting on the dignity of his situation as someone who is experiencing these human things. He's always trying to do the best with what he's got. And maybe what he's got, maybe the hand he's held is he's an android. Like Maybe he doesn't really exist. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really touch his experience. All that's valid at the end of the day is his experience. That's the only thing he has to go on. And that, to me, is a heroic position, to be in this position of profound questioning, where you don't even know if you really exist. But all you've got is your experience. And so even with all of the doubts and all of the mindfuckery piling up around you, that's what you've got, so that's what you work with. And just having the courage to do that in the face of not cosmic horror exactly, a la Lovecraft, but just cosmic bafflement, like cosmic unknowability. That to me is the position that Dick is in. And I do find it heroic because I find myself in the same position, thrust into a completely incomprehensible world, and I don't know what I am. And the idea like, well, the one thing that you can do is just keep on asking those questions, keep working within the matrix of unknowability and the matrix of your own finitude. And that's the best you can do. I don't know. Maybe for some that's a cheerless or not comforting idea. But for me, there's considerable comfort in that. enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>